everyone. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Tabernacle Young Adults Podcast. We pray that this lesson would be a blessing to you. September, Brother Kilman headed us up with the beginning of a new series that we're calling our Worldview Series, our Can You Live It series. And today is going to be lesson two, and just want to give just a really quick review of Brother Kilman's lesson about epistemology, right, epistemology. And that is just how do we know what we know? Where is our starting point? How do we understand wisdom and knowledge, right? So Brother Kilman taught us that our foundation has to be upon Scripture. And so as a starting point, that's where we are beginning. Now, that is kind of what we might call an in-house conversation. If we're talking to an atheist, we probably wouldn't say, you have to start with the Bible because they don't really believe very much about the Bible. So as we're going through this series and we cover these various topics, we're going to be hitting both the in-house issues and the out-of-house issues. So we're going to be talking about what, what would an atheist say about this and how might we respond to that. And we might even talk about if it was another Christian we were talking to, how would we talk about that. But today, I'd like to start with just an illustration. This is based off of a story, an ancient Hindu illustration of the blind men and the elephant. If you've ever heard of this or seen it, it's this illustration of this elephant And there's these several blind men that are around the elephant, and they're all touching the elephant, different parts of the elephant. And so one one man is touching, like, the tusk. He's feeling, he's like, oh, man, this is like a spear. Another one is feeling the trunk, and he's like, man, this is like a a rope or something. I don't know. Another person's touching the side, and he says, oh, man, this is like a wall. Another one's grabbing the, the legs, like, man, this is like a tree. And the idea is that every person is interacting with the elephant in their own way. And they're describing the elephant to the best of their ability, but they're blind. They don't exactly know what's going on. Now, the original intent of this story might be something a little bit differently, but what I want to talk about is how it is intended today. Because when people use this type of story, they say there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as you and I discovering actually what is true because everyone interacts with life in a different way. So the elephant would be the meaning of life. It would be truth itself. It would be whatever big picture. It could be religion. It's whatever big picture that you're looking at. And they say one blind person might represent a different culture or it might represent a different type of religion or whatever it is, there's no such thing as truth. We are all interacting blindly with life. So does that at least make sense what they're trying to say? From that type of illustration comes phrases like this, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Have you ever heard this phrase or at least the concept of it, what's true for you is not true for me? Or in my opinion, etc. right? Anybody ever heard that kind of thing? So that's where these ideas stem from is this idea that there's no such thing as truth. What's true for you is not true for me, right? That's where those kinds of ideas stem from is this type of idea. I haven't told you exactly what we're talking about yet. We'll get to that in just a second. But I want to debunk this story just very quickly with three little points, okay? There is a storyteller to this illustration. Sometimes people try to use this and they try to make this seem like it's this huge mind-blowing thing. Like this just shows, you know, like your religion, you're this one blind person. How could you dare say that the other blind person is wrong. Okay, but there's a storyteller that actually knows what's going on. There's a storyteller that knows what an elephant is. He even knows that the people are blind, right? So that right there, it just discounts the entire story right there just with that one little 
observation, but also the blind men, how do they actually know anything at all? Because for the one person touching the leg, he knows what a tree is. Well, how does he know what that is? Can't he figure out what an elephant is? Does that make sense? They know something. They know some things are true. So then kind of a, a sub point of that is if they keep examining the elephant, they will find out that they were wrong in the first place and that there is something true. So for me, I would say if we look hard enough and if we study enough, we'll know that there are some things that just are not livable. Hence why we're calling this world's worldview series, Can You Live It? Because if we look at our lives, the lives of others, I heard it said some time ago that you do not have to experience every lifestyle to know that it doesn't work. And so we're going to look at things and we're going to observe and study and we're going to analyze things to see that, you know what, there are some things that are not livable. There are some beliefs that we should not have because when they play out into reality, they do not work. So what our lesson today is, our second lesson in this series, is philosophy. Now, a lot of times I think when we hear that word philosophy, people are kind of intimidated because philosophy, there's kind of a fear or a stigma with that word. And so there's complex questions that arise in philosophical discussions. And sometimes the questions are so nonsensical, Brother Kilman, it goes over people's heads and it ceases to become relevant. It ceases to become really important to our lives, Brother Cameron. So people just turn it off and say, well, I don't really need philosophy. That's what happens. It's sometimes an intimidating study. But another reason why some people might fear this topic is because there have been a lot of very famous atheists and philosophers that have attacked the scriptures. But you know what? We don't have to worry about that because there's actually a lot of really good Christian philosophers that have opposed those ideas and combated them. Philosophy in of itself is not something evil. We'll see where philosophy can go wrong momentarily. But lastly, I think that there is some opposition to philosophy as Christians because some people might try to say, well, all you need is faith. Now, I'm trying to lay a little bit of a foundation here to tell us that philosophy in of itself, well, I should say, if we do it the right way, that's actually how I should phrase it. If we do philosophy the right way, it can benefit us. But sometimes people might try to say, well, all you need is faith. Well, let me ask you, what is faith? Faith is just simply trust. Is it blind? Sometimes we hear that. Well, faith is blind. I thought as Hebrews 11, one says faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is blind. We should just close our eyes and follow. No, no, no. When God called him, Abraham didn't know where he was going, and he was looking for a city that he didn't know where it was. But you know what he did have? He had the voice of God guiding him. He was not blind. Okay, when you look at Scripture, you can see evidence after evidence. When God says, this is going to happen, and you'll know that I'm the Lord. Okay, God is going to use a burning bush to call Moses. One of my favorite examples, an example that all of us know very well, fire came down from the sky, and what did Elijah say? The God that answers by fire, through that evidence, you are going to know who the true God is. It's not blind faith. So we trust in God. Now, we can't see God, right? We can trust in God and know that maybe something has not come to pass yet, but that doesn't mean we're blind. We have scripture. That's not blind faith. So does that make sense? So God knows some things that we don't know. <clears throat> so the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that doesn't mean we just close our eyes and turn off our brains and just believe everything that we hear. We don't need to fear philosophy in a general sense. It can be good if it's used the right way. So let's go into this now. What is philosophy? Philosophy, if you just look at the meaning of the word, Brother Cameron, it, and Brother Brian, it just means the love of wisdom. The ancients, the Greeks and the Romans, now they had some really wacky stuff, but they had some good stuff too. And they thought that you can use philosophy to help understand what is good and how to do good. And I don't mean good in the sense of like when your mom and dad ask you, hey, how was school today? And you're like, it was good, it was average. When philosophy says good, they mean like the good, right? The goodest good, if I can say it like that. The highest good that there is. 
philosophers, that was one goal that they had was to figure out what is the good and how can we achieve that. Now, of course, we cannot do that without scripture, but I'm just laying a foundation in general. We're trying to figure out what philosophy is. So there's so many branches to philosophy. If you ask different philosophers the meaning or how you do philosophy, they might come up with different answers. But what I'm trying to just get down maybe to the foundational element is this. When we say philosophy, we're talking about analyzing and asking the big questions of life. We want to look in depth. We want to look deeply. We want to ask big questions. We want to analyze these things. We don't want to just believe something without actually thinking about it. Now, why are we having a whole class? And actually, I'm laying the foundation here, and then the next lesson is going to look at philosophical arguments for God's existence. These are important issues. These are important things. So if that's all philosophy is, is loving wisdom and trying to figure out answers to life, why should we fear and avoid it? Well, let's go back to some things that Brother Kilman had talked about. It goes back to our presuppositions. What's a presupposition? We're not trying to go overboard with all the terms and all the technical things, but these are really good words to know because it will bring us understanding. And a presupposition, as we, as we remember, it's an idea that you have before you approach a topic. It's a bias, maybe on, on a negative definition side to say, Brother Ethan, it's an assumption or a bias. It's something that we have even before we get to the topic. So why is that really important to know? Because everyone has a presupposition. Everybody has a starting point. Everyone starts somewhere. Everybody has a bias. I'm trying to say it in as many ways that I can. This is why epistemology had to be lesson one. And maybe you can go back and re-listen to that great lesson by Brother Kilman at another time. Because bringing in those blind men again, they all have presuppositions. So what's a big question for us? Who is right? Who has the correct presuppositions? Who has the correct starting place? Because not everybody has the correct starting place. And as we learned in our last class, guess what? When it comes to scripture, there's only two starting places. You either start with God, Sister Regina, or you start with man. That's your only two starting places. There's no neutral ground because automatically then you're anti-God, right? So if someone were trying to tell me, well, that's an assumption for you to start with God. What's an assumption for you to start with man? So whenever somebody tries to attack a fundamental belief, you need to ask them, well, what gives you the right in your presupposition to say that. Now, this is philosophy. We're digging a little bit. We got to think a little bit. We got to analyze some things because this is why philosophy, and, and I'm getting ahead of myself just a tad, it's learning how to think, actually. A lot of people have thoughts, but a lot of people don't know how to think. <laughs> the, the laughter in the room. That jerk on the highway, he's one of those people. I had somebody crazy today. They, like, cut me off real hard and then went way over to the left lane and went off into the shoulder by the tall median and just almost ran this guy off. I was like, my word. I've never wanted to call someone in more than I did at that moment. But anyways, presuppositions. So how do we know who's right, Brother Jacob? How do we know who is right? There's no neutral ground. So let's practice just a little bit of philosophy. How can we know that what we believe is right? How do we know that our presuppositions are right? So I'm going to give you just two things. And of course, this is just kind of a, a survey of philosophy, right? There's whole courses on this. Brother Kilman has a whole contemporary theology class where you hit some of these issues at IBC, different things. But I'm going to give you two things that you can think about that we'll kind of keep building from in here. The first one is this. Can you live it consistently with other beliefs that you have, right? So if you believe one thing, if you have another belief, do those things go together or do they contradict themselves? Okay, so, and I'm going to give us examples of this in just a second. The second one is this, and it's connected. These are both two important things. Does your belief match or conform to reality, okay? So 
I'll say those two again. Can you live it consistently with other beliefs that you have? And does your belief conform or match reality? So let me give you just some very practical examples of this. Let's say you meet this engineer, and this engineer believes that 2 plus 2 equals 15. Brother Brandon, how confident are you going to be to drive over a bridge that he built? Probably not very confident. Or what about a doctor, okay? Sister Rebecca, you are meeting with the doctor, and this doctor does not believe that there is such thing as truth. How confident are you going to be when he says, okay, our surgery will be on Thursday? Well, what's Thursday, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> what about a pilot? If the pilot does not actually believe in reality, you're going to think twice before booking that Delta or that Southwest flight, okay? Now, those are real life, potentially real life things, right? If those people do not hold to truth, I don't want to go with them. I don't want to be in the same vehicle with them. I'm not going to go up the elevator in that skyscraper that Mr. Non-Truth Engineer built. I'm not doing it, right? Because it will not match reality. That bridge will collapse if he could even get something together in the first place. His, his ideas, his beliefs do not match reality. It will not be a safe bridge. But what about this? Do you believe that human nature is essentially good? Because that's something that's going on right now in our government, in our cultures, that would try to say, well, people are mostly good, it's wealth that corrupts them, or it's their gender, or it's their skin color that corrupts them. Do you see how this idea of how it does something match reality, is it consistent or not? This plays directly into what we believe about government, into how what we believe about what laws should be made. These are very serious questions. This is why we're talking about worldview today for this, this whole series. Hey, do you believe that you can change your gender? We could go down the list, couldn't we? And you guys probably have thoughts in your own head. This is a really important question. These are all things that we have to see. Does this match reality? Is it consistent with other beliefs? Can these things be lived out? Can you live that belief? This is why philosophy is so important that it's done right. Because we have to look at these things, Brother Andre. We have to analyze it. We have to look and see, is this consistent? So how can we use philosophy? As I've already stated, philosophy should be something that teaches us and helps us think. Because if we are actually doing what the word means, seeking and loving wisdom, we should be striving for that and seeking, is this area, Brother Kilman said it, that true fear of the Lord is understanding his wisdom and that I'm not smart enough to live outside of his wisdom. So what does he say about this, okay? So Jordan Peterson, I love how he explains this. He's the one that, uh, he, he has said, you know, pe people have different ideas, but they're, they're accepted uncritically. They don't think about their ideas. Again, they might have thoughts going through their head. That doesn't mean they're thinking. And what really helped me is, is how he explained, to think properly, you should have two voices in your head. I don't recommend more than that. But you need two voices in your head, and both of them need to be fighting over that idea. And if you do it right, you should be bringing in the best arguments for the idea and the best arguments against it. And you got to see which one will prevail. Okay, now, if I can just, I'll try to be practical and show you how I've done this. I love talking about the Bible. I love talking about the truth of scripture. I do not want to have weak arguments. Okay, I'm going to share a couple stories at the end about some, uh, a couple different scenarios. But when I was at Minnesota State University, at, right after IBC, I met a lot of atheists. I met a lot of non-Pentecostal Christians. And some of them knew the Bible at least a little bit. Some of them really didn't know much at all. But you know what? I knew that I have to have good, solid arguments 
if you don't, when an attack comes or an opposition, an idea comes against it, that argument that you're trying to be a witness is just going to collapse. So why have a weak argument? When I was, and I'm, I'm trying to be practical, so forgive my stories. When, when I was talking to this, this classmate of mine named Joshua, and he was asking very serious questions about the Bible. If I don't have good answers for that, guess what's going to happen? He's not going to respect the Bible because it's going to be such a weak argument. He's going to find something to deconstruct it. So why do I say all that? Because it makes me cringe. I hate it. But I would listen to atheists on YouTube and try to find their best argument. I would get on and I would listen to Trinitarians. Or I would get on and I would listen to people that don't like the Bible. And I would try to think, okay, well, that's a really weak argument because of this. Ooh, that's a really good argument. I need to deconstruct that. So you guys get what I'm trying to say? We got to learn how to think about ideas. And we can't do this in a weak way. Or maybe I could say a shallow way. We got to dig a little bit. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we have people that want answers. And there are hungry people. There are hungry people that want the truth. More and more, okay, I'm, I'm talking with Brother Kilman, Brother Galleon, Brother Turner. We're preaching out in these different places and and we're seeing the, the hunger that people have for the word of God. They want to know if what they believe is right or if they're out of the church. They want to know th- what's real because in their heart, they're not finding fulfillment. They're not finding that inner longing that God has placed in their hearts for the truth. They can't find it, and they want to know. So we have to be solid in our foundation of truth. We can't waver. We cannot be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We have to know what the truth is, and we got to stand on it. we got to know it. So we can't just accept things at surface value. This is what a lot of people just call critical thinking. We're analyzing, and we're thinking deeply. We're, we're okay, you know the Bible commands you to be discerning? The Bible commands you to look at something and see whether if it's of God or not. The Bible commands you to try every spirit. That doesn't mean try out witchcraft. It means you better test it put it on trial to see if it's of God or not. Not every spirit is of the Lord. Not every spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Bible commands us and tells us that in the last days, there's going to be false teaching. There's going to be teachers that are preaching and teaching only because people want to hear lies. We have so much lying in our culture. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of young men and women, teenagers, that are getting on the internet, that are getting on podcasts, they're listening to garbage that's not true, and they are turning away from the Lord. And I think some of that is their heart. But other people that are just wanting to know and they're hearing these things and it's messing them up. So God help us. God help us. And he will. But, you know, God uses people. This has stood out to me a lot in the last year or so. That in the book of Acts, you know that God sends preachers to people that are hungry. Yes, an angel went to Cornelius and said, hey, go find Peter. Well, you know what? The angel did not tell the Roman about the gospel. God uses people. God sent Philip out to the desert somewhere where no one else was to reach somebody that was hungry. Because God uses people to build his kingdom. And you know what he wants to do is he wants to use you to build his kingdom. Think about how marvelous that is, that we can be a part of something so eternal as God's glorious kingdom. And it's all grounded upon the truth. So when we get to future lessons, we're going to talk about what do we believe about God? What do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about society? What do we believe about ethics? What do we believe about the government? What do we say about all of these things? And philosophy done the right way is going to help us with that. Let's do a few more. Are we doing okay? I'm actually almost kind of done. So there's something in philosophy called self-refuting statements. And I think these are important just to give us a little bit more practical 
ideas and illustrations of what these look like. And I use these because this is stuff that people use today. Brother Chase, this is what people believe, but they're not really thinking about it, I don't think. So this is a very popular one. There's no such thing as truth. When I say these, just give me a hand raise if you've heard something similar to that, okay? There's no such thing as truth. Anybody? To which the appropriate response to that is, is that true, right? Because when you think about what we call the self-refuting statements, they're self-refuting. It's like saying in English, I don't speak English. It's a self-refuting statement. So when somebody says there's no such thing as truth, well, is that statement true? Because then just by saying that, it's nonsensical. It's self-refuting. It doesn't work. But guess what? People love to say that because if there's no such thing as truth, get that book out of my face. You cannot know the truth. Anybody ever heard something like that? We can't be certain to which we should say, well, how do I know if that statement is true? You get the idea. What's true for you is not true for me. Now, I went to a seminar that John Wharton Montgomery ran. Brother Tillman introduced me to this author many years ago, and he's brilliant, and he is hilarious, okay? And at the seminar, he said, if anybody ever says that to you, you need to take them out to the bus stop, and before the bus gets there, push them out in front of the bus. And after the bus runs them over, you can look down on them and ask them, did that hurt? Because maybe what's true for you is true for me. Because if I step out in front of that bus, it will hurt me as much as it will hurt you. But of course, he was probably only slightly joking. Only science can give us the truth, or we can only know what's true through science. Oh, did the scientific method tell you that? Does that make sense? To make a statement like that, to say all we can know is from science, well, is that a scientific statement? No. You cannot prove science, or let me say it like this. You cannot prove the scientific method by using the scientific method, okay? Two more. You're judging me. Everybody's favorite one, right? You're judging me, to which you should ask them, are you judging me for judging you? It's a self-refuting statement or idea. Well, that's just your opinion. Anybody ever heard that one? That's just your opinion. Well, that's just your opinion, so who's right? It is funny, right, because we hear these things. And we can laugh about them, but here's the sad reality is people use those statements and they mean them. They say those statements and maybe they, they're willfully closing their eyes spiritually so they, they do not have to acknowledge the truth, right? But these are philosophical issues. These are things that we need to look at and analyze and deconstruct them. We need to be able to look at our beliefs, whether it's in our culture, in our church, in our own personal lives, and we need to ask, can I live this? Because any one of those statements that I just used if we actually live that out, our society is going to grow even more chaotic than it is now. I mean, just as a simple illustration, right? I worked at CCS for a number of years. Brother Barkas hired me. And, you know, you have to make some judgments. Because if I was a known thief, he probably would not hire me to be over the finances. But guess what? That's a judgment call. But that's righteous judgment. There's a right way to judge someone. So my point is, these ideas, and there's so many of them, we could probably go through and share and, and even laugh about some. But again, People use these ideas and they believe them, but they're not consistent ideas. So not only are we going to look at outside issues, not only are we going to look at what is the world saying, we need to turn that mirror around and look at our own hearts to say, okay, what am I believing? What am I doing? What am I saying? Okay, the great philosopher, great Greek philosopher, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Maybe one of his most famous statements the unexamined life is not worth living and i tried to find the exact quote brother kilman may remember it more literal than than what i can remember but if i remember right brother mooney once said when i was a student unexamined faith is not worth having unexamined faith is not worth having is our faith so shallow that when an attack comes that we just fold up and give up or are we so rooted in the truth 
that we could say what Job says and, and we can feel like we've been cast down by the Lord, but we can say, I'm still going to praise him. Can we be walking up the Mount of Olives weeping like David did because his own family has turned against and rebelled him, but his faith did not falter? When, when attacks come against the word of God, can we stand against these things? And, and why is this so important that we're talking about worldviews? Because everybody has a worldview. Everybody looks at the world a certain way. Whatever you say about step one is going to dictate what you say about step two in your worldview. Whatever you say about step two is going to lead you all the way to step, step 10, all the way to step 43. Whatever you say at step one will dictate what you say about the rest. That's why we say, can you live consistently? Okay, and we're going to build this out later on, but just as a, as a little example. Okay, if you don't believe there's a God, well, that automatically says that you can't believe that men and women were made in God's image. And if that's the case, then you and I are merely just animals. And we are not the jewel of creation. Then survival of the fittest and the might makes right the strongest will survive. That's okay. Because that step one of saying there's no God will dictate what you say the next steps down the road. And we're all stepping somewhere. So when does philosophy become dangerous? I'm not going to get real heavy into the history, but there was a group of philosophers called the, the sophists in ancient Greece. And when I'm not going to go too far, something they said, one of their main sayings was, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. When does philosophy become dangerous? When man replaces God on the throne. When man becomes the measure of all things. Because again, you only have two starting points. You either start with God or you start with man. That's it. In my text, although it's coming at the end, 2 Corinthians 10.5, I wanted to go through more of this, but a passage that we all should be acquainted with. Paul says that we're casting down imaginations, right, ideas, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Because some people in the world, when they are the measure of all things, they think they know more than God does. They think through the wisdom of man, we can accomplish more than God and the church can do through God's wisdom. We can do more because look at how scientific we are. Look at all these things we're building and look at all these things that we can do. Look at, look at all the progress that we can make toward utopia. Yeah, look at the world. Things are going wonderfully. Every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And what are we to do? Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ because he knows better than you and I do. And when we obey, Brother Kilman, you've shared this so wonderfully that when we obey Christ, that's where blessing comes from. Because God knows what reality is like. God knows how to bless his creation. So the name of the series is Can You Live It? Can you live what you believe? And is it consistent? The music can come. I'm trying to wrap up here. So do we use these statements? Do we use these? Maybe we mentioned it tonight. Maybe we didn't. But do we use these self-refuting statements? Do we use a silly illustration of the, the blind men and the elephant to allow us to believe something that we know is wrong? If we do philosophy right, if not, if God is the measure of all things, then we're going to be okay. But I think for philosophy to be done right, if we truly believe it's the love of wisdom, that requires honesty of the heart. And this is not in my notes, I apologize, but Paul talked about the renewing of our minds. The Old Testament and the New Testament confirmed that the Spirit will transform our hearts. God can help us in the way that we think. God can help us with our inner desires and our motives. Again, when I was a student at Minnesota State, there's two days a week.
that I would go upstairs to the library. It was a fairly large campus. And I would go upstairs to the library, and I would just go to this corner where it was just, I mean, library in general is quiet, but it was just more secluded, and I just liked that spot. And two days a week, I would be up there, I don't know, two, three, four hours, depending on the day, because I had a big uh, gap of time. And I remember walking up one day, and this whole area, very close to where I normally would be, was just roped off, taped off, all this stuff. And it had happened that the previous day, at the same exact time that I would have been up there, a student at the university, I never met him, I never knew him, but a student committed suicide right there in the library. And what was so tragic about this is that he was a military veteran, so I think there were some, some other issues there as well. But what I think amplified it, Brother Kilman, is that he was a philosophy student. And why that hits me so deeply is because I know what philosophy classes are telling students on the secular college campus. They're giving arguments that there is no God, that there is no hope. I took some of those classes at different times of my life. They're teaching these students that there's no hope, that life is meaningless. So I'd be careful. You know, I'm not trying to put things into the mind of this individual. I, I don't know his heart or exactly what he was thinking, but I can just about imagine if he's saying that the injuries I sustained in war, the terror that I sustained in war was all for nothing, because the philosophies of this world, the vain deceit, the lies that this culture is telling the world, there's nothing left than why stay alive. One classmate, I heard her say this in class, she was taking an ethics class, which ethics, you know, that's supposed to be, you know, but what's good versus wrong, and it's supposed to challenge the way we think about morals, and it just, it blew my mind, I just sat there, because she was so thankful for her ethics class, because it convinced her that she should become a vegetarian. And it's almost laughable until you think that's the greatest thing they can talk about on a college campus, is the ethics of killing animals or not. Because you can't touch the abortion issue. You, you can't touch assisted suicide euthanasia. You can't talk about those issues. So the greatest thing you can glean from an ethics class is that you're gonna become a vegetarian. That's gonna be the great thing you look back at your life and say, I'm so thankful that my mind was changed to do that. Or you can let God guide your beliefs. When man becomes the measure of all things, I think God laid this on my heart, that you get the pleasures of sin for a season, but if man is the measure of all things, you also get the horrors of sin for eternity. Because if man is the measure of all things, yes, you get the pleasure, but then you get the horror too, because the pleasure won't last. Brother Kilman, I want to talk about Jay Budajeski. You do that so well in so many places that the things we try to find outside of the will of the Lord, we try to find things outside the Bible, they do not last. You should read Ecclesiastes. That could be our homework. We could go through Ecclesiastes and say, finding meaning outside of God is like chasing the wind. You'll never see it, and you'll never attain it. What if you let God guide your beliefs? Romans 14, 17, again, I'd like to go through more of the context, but the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, and it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Ghost. We need to let God guide our beliefs. We need to think about our starting points. We need to dig deep down and say, why do I come to church? Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I believe in the Bible at all? Because you can know the truth. What's the truth going to do? It's going to shape you. It's going to mold you. It's going to make you free. So maybe we could just pray that God helps our thinking. And maybe we could pray about not being intimidated by the attacks of the world, by 
well, you're just a simpleton, you're just a Christian. Maybe we can pray against feeling intimidated by those things. Or, or maybe we could pray against not caring. Maybe we could pray for God to shake our hearts and stir us up a little bit. Maybe we could pray for confirmation of some things. One of my keep thinking of things, I'm sorry, but one of my best friends growing up, he's the youth president of Minnesota right now. Brother Turner just did their youth conference, and they're telling me that in one of the services, my friend's name is John Brom, Brother John got up and he asked the Minnesota youth, he said, if any of you have ever doubted God's existence in the past year, I want you to come up. And I don't know every heart, I don't know the circumstances, but they said about half of the youth came up. Now, I don't know in what capacity, whether they're on the verge of atheism or if they're just really wanting to know what they believe is right. I don't know on what scale that is. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to say, first of all, if we're wondering those things, that's okay. We have the truth. We can talk about these things. We don't have to be intimidated by that. But last thing I want to say is the attacks of the world are not going to stop. They're only going to grow. They're only going to come stronger. And in some cases, if Paul and Peter and, you know, those guys, if they're right, those ideas are going to do their very best to infiltrate the church. But the truth will prevail. The gates of hell are not going to be able to stand against the church. Amen. But who's going to fight? Who's going to rise up to that challenge to take on the truth, to preach the truth, to share with that individual that's way out in the wilderness, to that Roman in his house seeking after the Lord? Who's going to be the one that's going to rise up to say, I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to let the lies of the enemy hold me back in fear. I'm not going to let some atheist philosopher in a tweed jacket with a pipe thinking he's all high in his ivory tower, make me stop preaching the truth. Because we can do it with the Lord's help. We can do it with his strength. We can't do it on our own. We can't start with ourselves and think we can have revival. But if God is the measure of all things, there's nothing that's going to stop his church. So I don't know in what way God is trying to prod your heart, but maybe we could just pray, God, help me to do philosophy right. Help me to love wisdom. God, help me to love the truth. Help me, Lord, to buy the truth and sell it not. Help me, Lord, to hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Because I want my beliefs to be livable. I want my actions to be pleasing to you because you know what's right. I want my life to be an example of righteousness. I want my life to be a witness to those around me at whatever capacity of calling or wherever God is calling us to go. God, I want to be used by you, and I want the truth to prevail.